few years ago the Times newspaper uh, published a book, The Greatest Sermons of the Last 2,000 Years. And uh, one particularly surprising sermon made it into uh, the book. I, I was surprised, not because the sermon was inconsequential, in fact it stands out as one of the most influential sermons in the history of America, if not in the English-speaking world. Now, I was surprised that it got in there because it's so uncongenial to our modern world. The sermon is uh, Jonathan Edwards' extraordinary uh, piece, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edwards was a pastor of a, of a rural church in Northampton in uh, 18th century Massachusetts, actually, an American uh, town. But Jonathan Edwards was an intellectual and spiritual giant. He was the first great philosopher of, uh, uh, of America and some say still the greatest philosopher of America. But his passion actually was not philosophy. It was calling people to the living God. Now, Edwards lived through a time that has since been, uh, come to be described as the Great Awakening in America in which whole communities were con- completely transformed. And Jonathan Edwards was the single most influential figure in that whole Great Awakening. This particular sermon was the single most influential sermon that he ever preached. He preached it on various occasions. One famous occasion was in Enfield in Connecticut. An eyewitness recorded later that day that during the uh, sermon there was a moaning and crying throughout ye whole house so that ye minister was obliged to desist. It wasn't heckling, it was a profound conviction of sin which later in the day led to deep and joyful conversions. He described those same people at the end of their time together. Oh, he said, ye cheerfulness and pleasantness of their countenances. That's very foreign to us. Not actually only the language but, but the emotions. And when you read it actually, the sermon itself. Again and again in his sermon, Edwards emphasises the furious anger of God against sin and the precariousness of everyone's position until they repent. He describes them at one point as as hanging between God's fingers like a spider over a pit. He accuses them of being a thousand times more hateful to God than venomous serpents. It belongs to a bygone era and the melodrama of, uh, of, of Edwards' sermon um, perhaps was appropriate to his day but uh, not so appropriate today. But as I read that extraordinary sermon. I cannot help thinking we have lost something since those days. Something that is actually vital to biblical Christianity. We've lost the fear of God. One of the consistent calls throughout the Bible is to fear the Lord. Not only actually in the Old Testament, but also in the New. When Jesus 
does his miracles. We find in the Gospels, we're repeatedly told people um, were afraid. Or in the book of Acts, we're told that uh, no one dared associate with the early church because of the fear of God. But nevertheless, true converts were added to their number daily. Actually, in every age, um, uh, there, has, there is always a tendency to downplay and to minimise the awesomeness of God. That was certainly the case in Amos's day. Last week we saw how Amos pronounced, as Richard said, God's judgement on every nation that surrounded Israel, but he was homing in on God's people themselves. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not hold back my wrath, he says. But Amos knew that was a deeply hard message for them to accept. He knew most particularly as he addressed people who called themselves the people of God that those people would, uh, would say, but, but, but surely we're immune, Amos. We belong to the covenant people. Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. Hear this word of the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole people I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen out of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your sins. Notice the word therefore. It's a surprise. Israel are God's unique people, but therefore, he says, I will judge you. That's what we're going to see this morning. God actually asks the most searching, the most testing questions of people who call themselves his people. Therefore, I will punish you, he says, for all your sins. You may remember last week he punished uh, the wider world for their grossest sins. But Israel knows more. So they are punished for more. Now I know the theologians amongst you will say, ah, but doesn't Romans 8 say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? I have to say that is a deeply precious uh, truth of Scripture that we need to hang on to. But nowhere in Scripture is that truth used to encourage us to be light-hearted about sin. In fact, Scripture again and again says that if we do persist in lives of sin. We have no right to claim that we are in Christ Jesus. The wicked will not inherit the earth, Paul says to uh, uh, Corinth and to the churches in Galatia, or after describing how God actually judged his own people in Old Testament times. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. There is no immunity from God's awesome judgment simply through sitting amongst the people of God. We have no right to take the real warnings that God gives in Old Testament and New light-heartedly. 
Amos knows they will find it really hard to, uh, to absorb. So, he gives them a whole series of riddles. Verse 3, Do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so? When you see two people walking down, uh, down a road, how many of them have agreed to do that? He says, both of them, unless one of them is a stalker. Verse 4, uh, does a lion roar in the thicket when he has no prey? Does he growl in his den when he's caught nothing? When a lion roars in the night, says Amos, um, he, why does he do it? He does it to make it plain to any others in, those, uh, in that whole area that the game here are his. Let no other lion come near. When a lion growls in its den... Why does it do it? It does it because it's got meat that is protecting. It has killed. Verse 5. Does a bird fall into the trap on the ground where no snare has been set? Does a trap spring up from the earth when there is nothing to catch? Why does a bird fall? Because someone has snared it, he says. Why does a trap spring? Because something has sprung it, he says. Verse 6, when a trumpet sounds in a city, do not people tremble? What do sensible people do when they hear the alarm trumpet being sounded from the city walls? They fear. Now, says Amos, this is what I'm telling you. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the Sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Let's just rerun those riddles, those images for a moment and, uh, and suddenly see what Amos was getting at. God says... Do you Israelites think that you and I can walk together simply because um, of one person's decision? No. You listen to me. If we're to walk together, I'm telling you the grounds on which we will walk together. Or that uh, um, picture of the lion... Do you think I, the lion, roar for nothing? Says God. Toothless lions stay quiet. Because they fear. But lions with teeth roar. And Israel, do you think trouble comes upon you completely by accident, like a bird suddenly falling out of the sky for no reason? No, says God. You look for the cause. I trap. I snare. I judge, says the Lord. I am in control of everything that happens to you, good and bad. And he says, do you think that you alone in the city should not tremble when I sound the trumpet of warning? We must hear that warning from God. We must let those images penetrate us. God is speaking. 
who dares not listen? How does God speak then? That's what he explains in the rest of chapters 3 and 4. And uh, we're going to do it in reverse order, actually. We're going to look at first at chapter 4, verses 6 to 11. There, Amos makes it plain that God speaks sometimes through trials, through difficulties. For verse 6, God sent hunger. For verse 7, God sent drought. For verse 9, God said blight, mildew, locusts. And for verse 10, God sent nameless plagues and war. Verse 11, God sent natural disaster. All of those he sent again and again and again um, as warnings to them. They are not as, as secure as they would like to think. They were, they were warnings of final judgment if they did not repent. But five times in that section, Amos repeats again and again, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. God speaks through trials and difficulties. He speaks to nations through trials and difficulties. Often, actually, frankly, he doesn't need to bring those trials on us by some specific action. He just needs to let us live with the consequences of uh, of our actions. We mentioned last week that uh, many of the world felt that that the horror of 9-11 was a warning. And in the immediate aftermath of that, the churches of America were full of, pe- of, of people. But by and large that didn't last. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Or for two, more than two decades now, AIDS has been ravaging the world, a terrible consequence of our moral rebellion which affects the guilty and innocent families alike. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. For half a century now in our nation, violence has been rising. The last time that the murder rate in Britain rose as dramatically as it has been doing over the last 50 years was actually at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century when again Christianity was in serious decline. And in the second half of the 19th century there was a great rise in evangelical Christianity and a dramatic drop in the murder rates. What's going to happen now? Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Now this passage is is uh, uh, important for whole nations but it is particularly speaking to God's people in that way. Writing to uh, um, the, the church in Corinth, for instance, in the New Testament, who treated one another in a completely heartless way, Paul said, that is why some of you are weak and sick and a number have died. Yes, God continues to send trials and difficulties and troubles as warnings to his people. Sometimes again, God 
does it in a sp- by a specific action. Other times he just lets us live with the consequences of our actions. Perhaps we're poor because we don't work. Perhaps we have bad relationships because we treat others badly. Perhaps we don't feel loved because we don't love others. Perhaps we are sick because we don't look after our bodies. Perhaps we are stressed because we will not trust God. Of course, trials are not always warnings. Let, let's be very clearly, clearly about that. Sometimes they are just the, uh, the, the product of a fallen world. Sometimes God allows things to happen even because he has confidence in us and he knows that those trials will, will not break our faith but will strengthen our faith. That's what he did for Job. But we must not dismiss this other strand that there is clearly in Scripture they can function as warnings to us. When trouble comes our way it is very important for us to examine ourselves before God, to confess our sins, to, to, to let whatever experience it is humble us and purify us. Whole churches sometimes, when, they, when, they, when they're hit by trouble, need to ask whether they are experiencing the discipline of God. A friend of mine is a pastor of a, of a church which um, some years ago was was ribbon with, with, with enormous problems and um, eventually he concluded that the only solution was to call the whole church to public repentance and they wrote out a covenant of their confession before the Lord and commitment and uh, every church member signed that covenant it's, uh, it's framed um, on a wall in that church from that moment on things looked up It's a different church today. Do not underestimate the way that God can discipline us through trials. Proverbs actually says, a fool spurns his father's discipline. But the main way that uh, God speaks to us is found in uh, uh, the earlier part of our, our section this morning. God speaks to us also, mainly even, through his servants. Verse 7, Surely the Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Amos is commissioned to speak God's words. It's often, uh, um, frankly, difficult to interpret circumstances, but it's not difficult to interpret what God tells us. Amos tells these people of a sin which um, he is confident the whole of the world around can see. Verse 9, Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt, other nations around. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, that's uh, the heart of Israel. See the great unrest within her, the oppression among her people. Let the nations come says Amos. Let them have a look at what's going on in Israel. They will notice the unrest and oppression. But not Israel, verse 10. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. 
who hoard plunder and loot in their fortresses. Oh, would some power the gifty gear us to see ourselves as others see us, says Robert Burns. And I fear so often that, um, that, that Christians just really cannot see what stares in the face of others. On the debate about homosexuality, for instance, we must certainly be uh, uh, clear that Scripture does not support homosexual behaviour, but uh, neither does it it support uh, uh, oppressing and being vindictive to minorities who are struggling. Some of the internal squabbles that God's church get into would uh, would shame um, uh, the, the the worst political party. Remember, the uh, voters decisively voted the Tories out of office for just that reason. Would they vote for God's church? I've actually been rather troubled this week by the lack of um, our lack of visible involvement in the Make Poverty History campaign. I haven't even got a white um, uh, band myself. Troubled um, partly because of this passage, partly because uh, I saw a big Make Poverty History banner stretched across uh, a church building recently and I thought to myself, What does the lack of a banner on our church say to the local community about our concern for the poor? I wonder whether it invites the world around us to conclude they do not know how to do right. They hoard plunder and loot in their fortresses. Amos speaks of um, sin and failure which the rest of the world can see with great clarity. He speaks of judgment that uh, uh, God's people cannot avoid. Judgment on their corrupt religion, verse 14. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. Judgment on their fabulous wealth, verse 15. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed. The mansions will be demolished. Judgment on their ruthless self-indulgence. Hear this, chapter 4, verse 1. You cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husband, bring us some drinks. The Sovereign Lord has sworn by His holiness the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will go straight out through the breaks in the wall and you will be cast out. Of course God's not against wealth. Wealth can be a great blessing. Of course he's not actually against owning a summer house and a winter house if uh, um, that is appropriate or lovely ornamentation or enjoying alcohol or religious ceremonies. But if there is no righteousness, if there is no true worship, if there is no fear of the Lord, they are all a stench to God. And finally, I think, and most chillingly, Amos speaks of God's willingness to give them up. Verse 5, 
Verse 4, sorry. Chapter 4. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. They have a centres of worship. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering. Brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites. This is what you love to do, declares the Lord. How many churches has he said that to? Get on with your false religion if that's, that's what you want to do. Just don't expect me to be there. A friend of mine was searching for, uh, for God and um, a number of years ago and repeatedly went with his little son to a church which frankly was dead. And one day his son said to him, Dad, how is it that every time we go to God's house, God is out? From the mouths of babes. One of the most chilling things in the New Testament is the statement of Paul in Romans 1. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Oh yes, and that can include maintaining some form of religiosity too. Now of course I know it is possible for sensitive souls to read words like this and to be unnecessarily troubled. In a bygone era, I think that was a very significant danger. But frankly, I have to say to you, that is less so today. In the, in the couple of decades that I've been a Christian, in the, in, the, in, the, in the decade or so that I've been a pastor, I have seen the numbers of people really agonising over their sin and over whether they are saved or not dwindle to almost nothing. There's a much bigger problem of people who frankly are presumptuous, who have no fear of judgment. I have to include myself amongst that. I am part of that, that whole tide that majors on the love of God and has no, so often very little deep appreciation of the justice of God. I see it amongst people who will not take that final step of repentance and faith. Not because they're agonising over whether God has really changed their heart or not, but actually, frankly, because they want to keep their options open in the long term. I see it with people who always keep that, that trump card in their back pocket, which has written on it, I have faith, I attend church, I, I, I believe the creed, that is rubbish, says God, throw it away. I don't know whether you noticed uh, um, the, the song we first sang right at the beginning, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation. Um, originally, there was a line... Um, a couple of lines, ponder anew what the Almighty will do if with his love he befriends thee. But unfortunately um, our updated version had uh, who with his love will befriend thee. 
Now, of course, that is a firm promise to believers as they respond in repentance and faith. It's not theologically wrong, but I wonder whether it's another sign that we move from that awesome wonder that God could ever love and befriend me if with his love he befriends me. So that rather shallow assumption, he will befriend me. The sermon that uh, Jonathan Edwards preached to that Enfield congregation was on uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 35, a text again addressed to Israel, their foot shall slide in due time. And make no mistake about it, God is in the business of making the feet of those who will not truly repent towards him. Slide. I've seen it. I've seen it again and again. I think of uh, someone who um, uh, I was hearing about just yesterday who was part of a house group that I led 15 years or so ago. I was always a little bit worried that he was a bit half-hearted. He always said the right answers but uh, I wondered how much heart there was. He's nowhere now. He doesn't belong to a church. His children are growing up um, disorderly. He swears at them. Their foot shall surely slide. I don't, I don't want a single person to leave this place unnecessarily troubled because God gives massive, massive promises of forgiveness for all our sin as we repent, as we confess uh, our sins, as we come to Jesus, as we commit ourselves to following him. But neither do I want a single person to leave here with a light, trivial sense of God's justice. Well, my sermon hasn't been interrupted by moans and crying and uh, I'm not surprised. Perhaps that was unique to the 18th century. But we should be no less certain that when God the lion roars, he roars for a reason.